host, Riley Bounds, and this is a Solemn Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Laura Reese Hogan on the podcast. Laura Reese Hogan is the author of Litany of Flights, published by Paraclete Press in 2020, winner of the Paraclete Poetry Prize, the chapbook, O Garden Dweller, published by Finishing Line Press, and the nonfiction spiritual theology book, I Live, No Longer I, published through Whip and Stock. A Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net nominee, she is one of 10 poets featured in the anthology In a Strange Land, published by Cascade Books. Her poems have appeared in or are forthcoming in America, The Christian Century, The Wind Hover, Presence, Spiritus, Dappled Things, Anglican Theological Review, Sojourners, Sugarhouse Review, Scientific American, Lily Poetry Review, Whale World Review, and other publications. She can be found online at laurareesehogan.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-R-E-E-C-E-H-O-G-A-N.com. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to her website and to Litany of Flights if you want to find out more. So, Laura, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Riley. It's so great to be with you today. All right. Awesome. Okay, so, Laura, we're going to be talking about your book, I Live No Longer I, along with hearing a few of your poems. So, uh, to start, why don't you describe uh, what I Live No Longer I is? Well, the book looks at Paul's spirituality of suffering, transformation, and joy, and kind of finds patterns in his writings that help us see how he navigated his own suffering and how he was able to rejoice no matter what was happening in his life. Um, one important pattern in Paul's thought shows up in the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 6 or 11, uh, which breaks out into three identifiable moments of emptying out or loss uh, mm -hmm. with us, God being with us, and uh, also kind of more transformative union in God. So mm -hmm. we can kind of experience God in and through moments of emptying out loss and pain. We can experience God in and through our communities and nature, mm -hmm. created reality. And we can experience God in and through transformative union. Mm. Um, and those three moments kind of interact with each other as we go in and out of them throughout our lives. Uh, Paul experienced God in these ways, and he wanted to share that with his communities and show them how throughout every kind of challenge, we can still take joy in God in our relationship, our constant relationship with God. Mm. Okay, very good. Um, so why don't you speak a little bit to, uh, your, your work, both in nonfiction and in poetry and how that might, uh, intersect. Okay. So, uh, my work in nonfiction is primarily spiritual theology. Mm -hmm. Um, the book, I live no longer I in essays. Um, and I, it's true that poetic images come into that work. Um, all the time. I, I find it uh, really important to give metaphors that are understandable and images that can mm -hmm. illustrate these theological concepts, which can kind of be difficult to grasp in other ways. But uh, giving a, a metaphor kind of, I think, helps simplify it. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, in my poetry, I think theology undergirds all of it. I mean, there's, there's always some kind of... Um, spiritual or theological um, aspect to a lot of my poetic work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm teaching eighth grade uh, literature and composition right now. And one of the things we're going over is metaphor and how metaphor can um, actually be more practical in speaking than uh, than speaking literally, um, because it can, it can uh, describe things in fewer words. Um, and it's something that we also inherently just grasp. We don't have to be taught what a metaphor is uh, or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like that you mentioned that uh, in theology as well, because theology is thought to be so academic and it has to be so uh, so clearly laid out in, a, in an academic paper like that. 
So it's, it's interesting that you can take that and use that still in uh, your academic writing. So. Yes, and I, I love what you just said about metaphor. And I think it's uh, particularly powerful when we're using metaphor and theological themes, because as we maybe talk about or think about something that we understand in nature, uh, we can, uh, you know, so there's like an action in it, like how a magnet works, how fire works, you know, we kind of intuitively can grasp that. So when we're talking about maybe how God works, you know, it's a little bit uh, more graspable and in, in through an image like that. Well, one of the things as I was reading through I Live No Longer I that I noticed um, is this uh, idea about Paul's paradox of the cross. Um now, could you explain maybe what that is and what he meant by it? Uh, sure. I This is just such a central concept in Paul, um, and it runs throughout his work. Um, so Paul first came to this because, uh, as we know, he was a, a very highly educated Pharisee um, mm -hmm. that he actually was persecuting Christians because he saw it as an extreme blasphemy. Um, and then he had that kind of famous conversion on the road to Damascus, where he encountered the risen Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but his highly educated Pharisee mind was questioning uh, one really important thing. Um, in Deuteronomy 21-23, those hung on a tree were cursed by God. Mm -hmm. Crucifixion was a hanging on a tree. So how could God be cursed by God? That was impossible. Uh, and yet he knew it was possible. So what's the impossible possible? Once uh, Paul finally kind of arrived at the idea of paradox, which is what it was, the impossible possible, everything clicked for him. I mean, that that was suddenly how he began to understand, for example, the cross itself. It mm. was death. And yet it was also represented life. Uh, it was defeat but it also was supreme victory. It was loss, but gain. Uh, so uh, we see throughout Paul's writings, uh, throughout the whole Pauline corpus, this idea of paradox. Um, for example, life and death, power and weakness, gain and loss, renewal and wasting away, victory and apparent defeat, and on and on, joy and suffering, so on. Now, this is really important. Paul was not saying, oh, as Christians, we take joy in the act of suffering. He was definitely not saying that. What he was saying, and this is really important to understand, is that there are two simultaneous and competing realities. So uh, in Paul's language, there was an earthly reality and a heavenly reality. Um, and they, they were both real both simultaneous, and uh, they were competing for our attention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we live in this earthly reality, which includes all kinds of, you know, challenges, right? Loss, suffering, um, and so on. But as Christians, we also have the ability to look for and perceive this second competing heavenly reality and draw on that reality in our perspective and our choices in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I think that's really elucidating. And I love this line that I read uh, in chapter two of I Live No Longer I. Perception and discernment of true value, seeing true reality is the core endeavor of Christianity. Um, I think that a lot of people think, as far as religion goes, that religion is something that kind of makes you feel nice, um, but it, it doesn't really speak to anything but your own internal reality. Um, so I like that you are speaking to objective truth here and you're speaking to the, I, I will almost say schizophrenic, but um, the paradoxical existence of being a Christian, holding these two uh, realities that might be intention from an earthly perspective as, um, as something that we coexist in. Yes, and it is a truth. And, uh, you know, it's something there, there are kind of two hallmarks of Paul's paradox of the cross um, that speak to what you just said, Riley. Um, it's 
it's this aspect of hiddenness. It's a little harder to perceive this heavenly reality, this true state of things. It can be kind of clouded by, you know, our experience of the earthly reality that we're currently kind of like bogged down in. Um, so it can kind of be hidden. We kind of have to look for it. Um, mm -hmm. And the second characteristic or hallmark of Paul's paradox of the cross is effectiveness. It's mm -hmm. God's supreme ability to be effective in any situation, no matter what, no matter how dire the circumstances appear, God is going to be effective in making all things work for good for those who love him. Mm. Um, so, you know, Paul was encouraging those uh, early Christians, but also us today, I believe, uh, to, you know, dig down, seek out and perceive uh, that hidden uh, yet very effective heavenly reality, the truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, take it over against the earthly reality, choose it, and choose to kind of live out of that reality with eyes fixed on that. With reality, obviously, our perception is going to be um, a, a major factor. So you suggest that um, it was a perspective he was trying, that Paul was trying to give to his communities um, mm -hmm. about uh about the heavenly reality and the earthly reality coexisting. This was what Paul was trying to teach his, uh, the early Christians. Now, could you describe the dynamic of this uh, perspective of the heavenly reality and the earthly reality coexisting? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about the early Christians and I mean, wow, think of what they were living through. I mean, we have our challenges today, but uh, you know, a first century Christian, <laughs> was being persecuted like nothing uh, most of us experience today. So mm -hmm. Paul knew this was one of his most urgent uh, tasks that he had to get across to his young communities. And that's why, you know, we see it as such a drumbeat in um, his letters to these communities. He really wanted them to be able to kind of see past the, the pain and suffering and the persecution and not stop, you know, at kind of the first sign of persecution um, mm -hmm. or, you know, their own crucifixion, but like, look to the resurrection, you know, uh, I'm saying that metaphorically look to this other reality of uh, this, the spiritual reality of life in Christ. Right now. Um, suffering and trial factors into what you were just saying and and Paul's Paul's main uh, motivation for teaching how these two uh, realities can coexist in our perception uh, the ma major factor here is trial and suffering um mm -hmm. could you say something about how trials and suffering factor into this concept of the of the perspective that marries the two realities Yes. So I like kind of imagining it as, uh, you know, we're holding two hands, one with the earthly reality, one with the heavenly reality, or in space, you know, just so much room between almost a chasm between what we experience on earth and this other kind of separate reality, this heavenly reality. Trial is the discrepancy or the divide, the chasm between the competing earthly and heavenly realities, or, you know, if you want to think of it as I'm using earthly and heavenly, because that's Paul's language, but you can also sort of think of it as our natural experience, you know, here uh, in the human condition, living on earth versus the spiritual reality that we can grasp. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be really hard to live in a painful situation, especially if it has no apparent purpose. Uh, so our reach of faith, has, you know, might have to have a long arm, you know, across this divide. So I think of that as the Christian trial um, that, you know, we're experiencing this loss and destruction and reaching for the heavenly reality of the gain, the victory and the joy, despite all appearances in the natural. Um, but while trial is the divide, uh, joy, joy and relationship. Uh, with God, joy in the Lord is actually kind of a bridge back over, you know, this divide. So if we can mm -hmm. access that constant relationship we do have with God, even, you know, if, if 
if it's a felt experience currently, or we're experienced divine absence, we're still in constant relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So if we can access the joy in that, I think that helps uh, grasp the heavenly reality. Um, and we see this in lives of holy people. I think that's what we can recognize and what inspires us actually about lives of holy people, past and present. Um, one of my favorite examples is St. Maximilian Kolbe, um, who is a great example of just, he was a priest uh, who volunteered to die in the place of another man in Auschwitz during World mm-hmm. War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so you ask the question, how did he do that? Right? I mean, isn't it doesn't, isn't that kind of speaking of metaphors, like a metaphor of, of you know, what, what we do here um, as Christians, like uh, we're kind of stepping into the pattern of Christ. How did he do that? He saw and embraced this heavenly reality over against the earthly reality. And he made his choice from that perspective. Hmm. Um, I guess I just want to ask practically, like how do we, how do we embrace that heavenly reality? How do we, how do we accurately and, Um, consistently perceive it right so hopefully none of us will ever be (laughs) in a situation uh like that but we all encounter you know challenges every day in life so this is actually a question right i've been thinking a lot about uh lately Mm -hmm. um to me it seems one of the fundamental disciplines of the christian life um as paul said to take every thought captive and reshape it according to the pattern of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And by that, I mean, simply having an awareness of whether our thoughts are lingering on earthly concerns, getting bogged down in loss, or as uh, Jesus told Martha in Luke 10, I think 41, 42, uh, don't be anxious and worry about many things because there is need for only one thing. And that one thing is to focus on him, on the heavenly reality. So we need to kind of come back and let God be the controlling force or center or however it works for you to uh, think of that, our anchor or our lodestar. Um, So as a practical matter, um, it's taking every thought captive is making or creating a habitual practice of awareness and recentering on God alone. And it's really easy for me to say and really difficult <laughs> to do, but a practice worth developing. And I am thinking of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection right now. He was a, a, a 17th century Carmelite lay brother uh, who his work um, that I think you can you can access now is a uh, practice of the presence of God. He made it his life's work to just keep refocusing over and over again on having an awareness of God in a moment by moment way. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of retraining our thoughts is, is one practical um, tool. And I also think kind of deliberately creating opportunities uh, to connect with uh, the spiritual reality or perspective helps Uh, For example, by engaging with music or art or poems or other writings to kind of re-immerse ourselves in that reality. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's all hard to do. Um, Like even before this, I was I was getting frustrated as I got set up and I was like, Jesus isn't going to help me to set up my podcast thing. I I need I need to do this on my own. Um, So maybe he did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he probably, he probably did. Um, here we are. It's yeah, working. here exactly. Um, I, I guess I would. I guess I would just want to ask, like, how how can we, um, like, even in these moments of frustration, or we feel like that we're doing it all on our own, um, how can we kind of ground ourselves or remind ourselves that we are not just like these earthly beings, but we're also heavenly beings, uh, residents of earth and citizens of heaven. I think it all comes back to relationship and, 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 you know, we're in the Christian life. I think we're reaching for uh, union uh, with 
Jesus, we're, we're reaching for, you know, how, however you conceptualize that uh, union with him, whether you think of it as uh, stepping into the pattern of who Jesus is, or just a relationship uh, that you have um, with him. Um, so I think that's one way to think about um, as, as you approach a task and, and like you were just describing, you're getting frustrated is I, I think God really wants us to um, rest in him, you know, uh, uh, really be in relationship with him in that very moment. And, uh, you know, he's given us gifts. He's equipped us to do certain things and he's with us and what he's asking us to do. So I think that that could be one approach. Okay, excellent. Well, um, I've been waiting for this. Uh, Laura is one of the best poets I've ever read. Um, so I am, <laughs> I am, I'm so excited to be able to share this now. So why don't we turn to some of your, um, your poems now, Laura, starting with uh, your poems from Litany of Flights. So why don't we start off with Tilling of Dorothy Day? Okay, yes. First of all, thank you so much, Riley. That that really touches me. Um, and so, yeah, Litany of Flights, uh, just to say a, a word about that book. Um, the poems in Litany of Flights, Litany of Flights, often explore nature and contemplate the human condition and the spiritual mm -hmm. journey. Um, the book is interested in what we see what we don't see and how we come to see. So the poem uh, you've chosen, Riley, to, to uh, start off with here, The Telling of Dorothy Day is kind of a great example of that. That's, you know, it actually really connects to uh, what we were just talking about, um, mm -hmm. the paradox of the cross. Uh, in, in a single moment, right, we have a choice. We can see two simultaneous and competing realities, one in the natural, one in the supernatural, and they're, it's vying, they're both vying for our attention. So uh, mm -hmm. this poem is, was inspired by a, a vision of Dorothy Day. Here is the tilling of Dorothy Day. Her swollen hands, red and peeling service, dutifully brooming the floor beneath his feet, beneath his spitting, his foul words, yellowed eyes beneath his stench and snaking abusive stare, his crusted lips crowded with curses, at last go to part her own. All the work for the worker, all the suffering for the suffering, all the poverty for the poor, all the anguish for the anguished, stacked high, combusting, in an angry flare of exhaustion, frustration, crucifixion. She opens her mouth hotly. Sudden as a silver shaft of sun piercing the dim cloud, she sees a dazzling face, a mountain unsuspected, even doubted, now shimmering clear, Though the rest of the land still sits sullen in dank purple shadow, St. Therese of the Sioux appears between her and the man, smiling. So startled, her unspoken vitriol flies hastily to the mountain on the thrust of that unveiled mildness. So reminded, her mouth falls silent. Even when the vision shudders, the scent of roses remains. Even when the fragrance fades, the flower sinks sturdy roots down inside. Even when she turns now, broom in hand, she feels the mercy bloom. Yeah, that, that, was, that was amazing, Laura. Thank you. Um, I love uh, how you take um, a noun and then give it uh, this verb bloom at the end, where it's it's it's, it's uh, yeah, I yeah, I I just I just love it. Um, to put it into context, you. could you um, could you actually speak to who Dorothy Day is, maybe for people who don't know? Hmm. Yeah, Dorothy Day uh, uh, was the founder of the Catholic Worker. Um, she she opened homes to. Um, 
um, impoverished people and uh, created kitchens like soup kitchens um, to provide food. Um, and, and that the Catholic worker is actually uh, across the U.S. In fact, it probably is. I'm pretty sure it's outside the U.S. too. Um, and it's so it's been uh, a movement that that was really powerful. Um, she herself converted to Catholicism and, and uh, Therese of Lisieux was a very um, a special inspiration for her. I think she named her daughter, actually, mm-hmm. um, for her. Oh, OK. And uh, what, what are the Catholic Workers Organization? What do they do? Uh, they have soup kitchens. Um, uh, so, in fact, you can volunteer to go work in the soup kitchen to help prepare meals okay. um, and distribute them uh, to the poor. And uh, I, I'm sure the Catholic worker has additional services available um, to the poor too, um, shelters and so on. Okay, yeah, very good. Now, the next one is uh, Cherith. So, why don't you uh, take that away? Okay, sure. Um, in this poem, Cherith, the, the title refers to a place that's mentioned in, in scripture. Um, it's it's a, a wadi or a riverbed, like a creek, um, where God sent Elisha the prophet to hide. Um, and it was during a drought, uh, so he could drink of that stream, and uh, God sent the ravens to feed him. So this is Cherith. Before you sent me down to the wadi, there was that goldfinch shining, swaying, it lingered, warbled, flew away, away, away to the blue mountain, each beat of wing a stop in my heart. Stay, stay, stay. The shadow of your bird in me shifted. My love slipped the green and lilac banks of the river beyond rushes and the reaches of my throat. Then those days wheeled on the track, puffing, mechanical and drawn. A thousand tongues choked on salt, not bread. I turned, turned into a pillar, looking for your warm yellow breast. The drought later, I forgot to remember how you had taken yourself away from me. My reshaped heart steadied, bundles and branches worn into grooves, patience uncounted. Is that why you sent me down to Cherith to hide me in your hands, to drink of the stream in cool, deep swallows? Sometimes I am afraid to touch the beauty of the emerald mossy stones. They make me ache with riparian joy. Your goldfinches alight, feed me presents and song. And it is for this, your finest wheat, I have longed. Mm, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Now, uh, one of the no- motifs that I noticed here um, that keeps actually appearing in your work is uh, that of birds. In um, mm-hmm. I Live No Longer I, the cover features a bird. Um, in the first chapter, you give an illustration uh, of one of the, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, right, <laughs> and mm-hmm. Lindy Flights as well. Um, one of the illustrations. Oh, oh yeah, and... no, you're right. Both of those. <laughs> yeah. They both have birds. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and in the, uh, I live no longer I, one of the illustrations in the first chapter has to deal with the bird. Um, and obviously this one, the bird motif reappears again. So could you speak a little bit to why uh, you chose that? Yeah, so, uh, and and the reasons are a little different for the two. So for I live no longer I, um, the bird, uh, there is a theme of birds. Uh, and one of the important uh uh, birds in the book is uh, speaking of Therese, actually, uh, Therese, Therese of Lisieux's little bird uh, that she mentions in her story of the soul. And the idea behind the little bird is that 
Therese saw Therese wanted to be a saint, but she saw herself as that was just in her mind, like completely out of her reach. Like she she imagined the great saints as great eagles, like flying and soaring uh, mm -hmm. near the sun. And she was just a little grounded bird, mm -hmm. flightless, she said. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she would like kind of peck around looking for worms and then try to contemplate God and then kind of like get confused that her wings were wet and then and, and, and then go back to God. Um, so she described herself as this little bird kind of uh, doing her best, but that she could kind of count on God, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so uh, that theme is in I live no longer I and again, you know, the paradox is right there. Uh, was Therese a little bird? Yes, she was. But was she also a mighty eagle? Well, yes, she was. <laughs> and she is right. So mm -hmm. um, and anyway, that's a big theme. And I live no longer or, or one of the themes and I live no longer I. Um, and in Lindy of Flights, uh, it's Lindy of Flights is preoccupied with all kinds of different flight, flight in terms, yes, of birds, um, but also flight in terms of escape, uh, in terms of mystical flights. And uh, there's even an airplane in one of the poems. So it, it kind of just played with, with that whole idea. Mm, okay, excellent. All right, so on to Exodus. Okay, yes. So speaking of escape, right? So it's uh, this poem touches on the flight out of Egypt, um, but also departures. Uh, this is Exodus. Was it shining tunnel or crimson crawlway, curve of salty side dripping, shaft of Egyptian sun refracted as they unfurled in frantic flight? eyes closed against drowning. I am vastly empty, so lonely, now he is gone. The pink of my cheek wet, the furrows white with anguish, the parting of the waves, a vice cracking of the heart, ribs open to the sky. Bleeding out is not what a body expects. My Osiria roses, licks of flame scrolling inward to ash. The lifeblood pulses, fragrant, offering up to transfigured glow. The waters saw you, beloved. They trembled through their hips. You opened wide the red mouth and hummed us home. Let us pass through the parting. Part us in passing, it happens that way. Only part of me is sure of the dividing path, but yes, I am sure of the yes. The ruby passage of you, splendid sea, lodestar, undertow, pulling me beyond reach. Through your tangled deep, navigation belonging only to my belonging to you. Those Osiris buds of life, of death, of life after death, of floodplain arching with birth, of Nile writ dust. Let us drink what laps at the root, split and start the bloom. Great, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing that I noticed, um, as we go on here is that your poems tend to focus a lot on shape um, mm. and in their form. And mm. I noticed with Exodus, um, you have to, you have to read the poem because uh, you can't see it, uh, but Maybe I can find it. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the, in Exodus, the uh, body of the poem is split right down the middle, um, just like uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, do you pay special attention to shape? Or does that just kind of come uh, organically with what you want to say? Um, yeah, so there, there is the poem that Riley's describing. And yes, um, I, I do pay attention to shape. Um, I think uh, the form of the poem is really important. It's the, the whole thing together is speaking something. Um, 
So yeah, for me, um, that, that actually, that may be the only poem I have that's split in the middle, but for me, just the, the whole idea of the parting of the Red Sea and the significance of that, the parting, um, and all the, the word parting means, um, I needed to come through in the form also in that poem. And I do have some concrete poems. Um, so I, I, I like this, letting the poem speak a, a form and trying to kind of follow that as I'm kind mm. of making it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, I think this is the last one from Litany of Flights. Uh, let's do transmission now. Okay. Um, well, I mentioned a little earlier uh, that Luke passage in which Jesus tells Martha, 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 you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need for only one thing. Um, it's one of my favorites, and that's part of the inspiration for this poem. And um, the other piece of inspiration uh, was a familiar sight here where I live in Southern California of hawks gathering in the thermals over the freeway. Mm. So more birds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is transmission. Red-tailed vortex of air spiraling above the freeway. Shimmering heat of a thousand valley vehicles pulsing a signal. Midday thermal currents invite a dozen wheeling hawks. A kettle organizes like a ladder of angels, a summons to float freely immersed in the higher home. My longing, a grounded bird, thrashes against the metal and traffic, but they rest on wings of another for a little, soar on the flow. Talons and beaks above and below on tongues of exhaust. They glory round the cell tower disguised as a too emerald, too stiff palm. They ring the blue finger of God. The transmission requires a path. My displaced breath of words, the updraft, a wrestling reach sunward, carried high and higher. The warmth, the movement, the center builds, a wafting hole, a transient channel, permeable gyre of connectivity, a sky road, even wingless eye could take. Open the roof, give my eyes to the dazzle, repeat like a mantra, like Dorothy in Oz, like Mary of Bethany, repeat the need for only one thing. Mm, beautiful, thank you. Now, um, uh, it looks like you have a second manuscript going, so I'm very happy to uh, be able to uh, read from that now. So um, why don't you tell us a bit about um, this new book that you've got underway and maybe what the theme is? Okay, yes. Um, well, the new book manuscript is titled Butterfly Nebula. And the book centers on questions of purpose, change, and resurrection. Um, resurrection both in and out of life. Mm -hmm. And its landscape is at times otherworldly. So the poems are kind of populated with creatures and cosmic phenomena, which uh, to my mind reveal aspects of our common struggle uh, toward faith and true identity. Mm -hmm. um, so the first poem uh, that I'll read appeared in Solemn Journal. Mm -hmm. um, and this is Soul Nebula. You have grappled to open the door over and over. You wonder why the inside must be swept clear so violently. The aching cavities carved by radiation and stellar winds streaming from massive O stars, far too dazzling to see. The destruction sweeps the dark vacuum with loneliness, yet hollow the nest, empty the hidden spaces of the glimmering nursery within you, forming pure new light. 
Baby suns stud the rim of waiting. Every possibility belongs to the expansion which unlocks the chamber, pushes wide the portal, sets the stars to ignite. Great. Yeah, that really takes me back to when I first uh, read the poem for our submissions. And usually I have to read uh, a submission maybe twice or more to really like um, to assess the merit. But this one I, I read through it once and I was, I was, she, she's in. So um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, next one then fireball uh, continuing the cosmic um, motif. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. These do continue the cosmic motif. Um, so this next poem was actually um, inspired by a fireball, which was witnessed in June, 2020 um, over Pilbara, Australia. <laughs> mm. um, and in fact, there's a, a video um, tape of it. Fireball, name the physics of such a trajectory of stone leaving the sling, of meteorite grazing the atmosphere after midnight, green flashing ball with twist of tail skimming the Pilbara sky, a stone from the river or from interstellar space, a chosen rock taken up and flung with a finesse beyond. The astounded Australian night, night owls gape at the green sparking spectacle. The rock strikes the millimeter of the giant's forehead, dead accurate. We will never find them, these fireballs, once all that superheated air vaporizes and only the pebble is left. We will never find the iron rock among iron rocks in the Pilbara outback, in the veil of the terebinth. And yet the story, the pyrotechnic glow of your perfect path, how the slightest may be the shooting star, how you propel us with aim and timing. We squint to observe the miracle, the flick of your wrist, the shining stone. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about your cosmic poetry, which is uh, how I first came across your work, um, is that you ground it with um, uh, mundane um, actions. So like um, a stone from the river or from interstellar space, uh, it takes I, what we were talking about earlier about the heavenly reality and, uh, and earthly reality, and it kind of marries those again. Um, so just mm -hmm. like uh, the flick of your wrist, God's wrist, the shining stone. Um, yeah, I just, I, I just love it. Um, Thank you. Thank you. All right. So you're never an always ring of fire. Take it away. Yes. Um, so this is one of those poems. Uh, sometimes I like drawing on the song of songs. Um, uh, some theologians and mystics, like, for example, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, John of the Cross, uh, find particular significance in the Song of Songs, um, that the bride and the bridegroom in the text can be interpreted as the individual soul and God. So this theme shows up in some of my poems, um, such as this one. And the only other thing you need to know is about every two years, there is a ring of fire eclipse in which mm -hmm. the moon eclipses the sun, but the outer edge of the sun is still visible. So it has kind of the appearance of a ring of fire. Mm -hmm. So I guess speaking of paradox, this is your never and always ring of fire. Mm -hmm. Sometimes only a hand, your hand, comes between us and death. Moses, who begged to see, you shielded from your passing glory. You loved too much to say no. Can you feel our nearest passing by of you, the bride languishing for the light of you, for the sight of you setting in her nothing? Sometimes you put the whole far moon between us, 
just to return her love. Sometimes in a new moon, invisible, she feels the blister of your passion, a presence hidden in the gloss of absence. Sometimes at apogee, the farthest point, when earth and moon and sun you align in lunar node, you shelter her, crown the daytime night sky with a marriage of fire and not, never and always. Dark disk steadily bites into bright, eclipses the eyes. Except for the longing, there is no prayer for this. Sometimes only a hand, your hand, holds the moon just so, pours molten fire into perfect annulus. One minute, 20 second, slender, blazing ring of promise for your dearest love, dearest passing shadow. Very good. Um, I noticed uh, kind of a theme of revelation of God uh, in the poem. Um, and that seems to be a, a bit of a recurring thing. I think it's um, most prevalent in, in this one. Uh, did um, did anything particularly spark this for you? Um, I well, I I think questions of divine absence and presence. Any anyone anyone serious in the spiritual life? I think that ends up at some point being a question. Um, because we're, we're in a relationship with God, but I think we go in and out of, um, experiencing the presence of God in a, in profound ways, and then maybe in more distant ways. So, and there can be any number of reasons, um, why that's occurring in our spiritual life. Uh, a lot of theologians, for example, one possible um and, and profound effect of that can be our own transformation um and i think that shows up in the cherith poem um it's the reshaped heart um that we have at the end of the poem that's kind of a, a result of of the absence so um yeah that's one thing <laughs> that mm -hmm. does recur yeah no excellent um all right and so via negativa new moon um you might, you might mention what via negativa is uh, for our listeners. That might help. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I like, I'm interested in the theology of um, the via negativa. Um, uh, John of the Cross is just an example of, of one of lots of theologians who explore that. Uh, the via negativa um, or the negative way is kind of a, um, one theology, kind of uh, not, I won't say in opposition to, but an, an alternative to uh, the via positive, positive or positive way. Um, the negative way uh, kind of asserts that the transcendent God is beyond human knowledge. So the idea is that even as we can enter into greater intimacy uh, with God, we approach an unknowing. Um, so we see that in Gregory of Nyssa is another example. We approach God. As we approach God, we go further and further into the cloud, as it were, like Moses. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and John of the Cross, we see it in a lot of his uh, theological work and also his poems, you know, not a not, I know nothing. He stammers, he knows nothing. Um, so in my own work, um, because I love the natural world so much, I like looking to the natural world uh, to find hints or encouragements about how to advance along uh, the via negativa, uh, even as we are in unknowing and maybe darkness. So in Litany of Flights, I have two via negativa poems and in Butterfly Nebula, I also have two via ne negativa poems. So this is mm -hmm. one of those two. Uh, via Negativa, New Moon. Why do I want the moon, which belongs to you? 
Why do I drive against the foothills like a maniac to moon hunt when it's gone missing? I don't understand what's happening to my physics. I might need to live in a tent for a month away from street lights and other blazes. I might need a blade, need to cut my hair and nails to slimmest crescents and solve for white pleated wings of moth sprung whole from phases just to die for light. You've packed up the not moon tonight, a hanging promise, your light will come. Go barefoot in the drought powdered dirt, press hard against the hole of cocoon. The strongest sit in the dust, unknowing. The strongest linger in the bind, wait for faintest sliver, emerge. Great, thank you. Um, one of the literary devices that I see you uh, using a lot is alliteration. Um, mm. It seems like you're you're pretty given to that, like um, drought powdered dirt in this poem, uh, strongest sit, uh, mm -hmm. faint for faintest sliver. Um, uh, what do you think that that um, contributes to your your work? Hmm. Um. Yeah, no, I, sound is really important um, in a poem. I, I, I want, for me, um, I, I really want the words to, a poem is something that can uh, be a contemplative touchstone. Uh, so I want, I, I want my poems to have some enduring value. So when you go back to it, um, it brings you maybe something new or it can stay with you. And I think sounds are one way uh, to do that. Um, if, if there's something that resonates, you know, one of the poems, maybe that's something that can encourage or uh, give insight or connect to a certain moment in, in maybe your own spiritual life. Um, and so I, things like that uh, Riley, like alliteration, you know, it's just another tool um, to create the music, um, the poetic music that you hopefully hear in the poems. Great. Well, um, Ghost Nebula, why don't you speak a little bit about that? Okay, sure. So, so Butterfly Nebula uh, has, um, as you probably have already surmised, uh, other nebula poems in it. <laughs> as well and uh those poems are kind of arranged uh throughout the book uh, uh along a narrative arc so um and they're all real nebula um and uh and some of them actually uh refer to actual characteristic characteristics of a particular nebula um this poem was uh coming out of so there is an actual ghost nebula there's actually a ghost nebula and a little ghost nebula. Mm. Um, but this poem was really more inspired by scripture by uh, Luke 24, uh, 39, which is the epigraph for this poem. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. And that, that was Jesus speaking to the disciples um, after he appeared to them. Uh, he was the risen Christ appearing to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is Ghost Nebula. So easily startled by vastness, dark distances, arrival. They were terrified by him that night, glimmering in their midst. Jesus knew they needed to finger the familiar relief of bones under warm flesh to believe the body. Pale star studding their peripheral vision, a specter rattling even Peter, who had seen the not ghost of him before walking the sea. Jesus knew their need to know he hungered, tasted the tilapia baked in olive oil with salt, lemon, tangy fingers to mouth. 
We also mistake for shade his spilling, think we grasp the ghost of him across the universe, filaments of light, nebular veils. His words cast the contours, recognizable until we see the not dead of him. Our terrified minds open to enormity, but gently. How he fishes the rock and creak of boat, rough coils of net, convinces us to touch the wooden hole, that we know this rising scent of salt on interstellar wind, drifting shape of wave of star, simple as flesh and blood. Yeah, I love um, how at the beginning of the poem, uh, you you mentioned that, well, you, well, you, you insinuate that Jesus is now a cosmic figure, um, mm -hmm. having transcended the, the earthly existence. Um, but also the cosmic is now personal at, at the same time. Um, so I, re I really love it. That's why I really love this poem. Yeah. All Thank right. You. And um, our last poem for the day then is uh, one that I'm very proud to say has been featured in Solemn Journal again. Uh, Hope as Alpha Centauri AB. Yes. Um, and this poem was written right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it came out of uh, just a desire to write something about hope. Um, and at the same time, I was working on this project and I had become interested in something called hypothetical stars. Um, those are stars which have never been observed, but physicists speculate that they could theoretically exist. So I started kind of playing with the idea of hope is one of those stars, like is something not seen, but believed, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, uh, you know, poems often like become what they want to become. And uh, the truth <laughs> and reveal truth. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that it was actually the very opposite, mm -hmm. right? That hope is uh, very real and close. So this is hope is Alpha Centauri AB. Hope is not a hypothetical star. It is a luminous duo orbiting next door. It's ceaseless, bright sway of photons always arriving at the speed of light, flickering through the fractures. Hope is not the brainchild of a genius, a theory to span the gaps between known and unknown facts, not a frozen star to sputter a dim prospect, a blitzar to battle doomed collapse through harrowing gates of a black hole, or an imagined quark star springing eternal and strange. No, it is our nearest star, a fiery reality, speaking to each dark tripwire that ruptures your heart. It is the candle on the sidewalk, the nurse not giving up, the teacher making space for the pressures of the room, the tensing future held in the present. Hope is the binary star, the solidarity, which appears as one sure shine. It winks, proceeds. It never fails to traverse the night. Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, this has been such a blessing. And um, I just appreciate, because this has been going on since January. We've been to have her on in January. Um, I so appreciate that uh, that you stuck with uh, this for all this time and waited around for me to get my act together. So, yeah. um, so <laughs> just thank pleasure. you. Yeah, thank you for coming on today, and uh, I just um, pray for the pray for the release of the new book and as it comes together. So, uh, so thank you again. Thank you so much, Riley. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.